This is your host, Josh Sharp, and welcome to New Hope's Cutting Room Floor Podcast, where we get a chance to talk about what didn't make it into the sermon this week and what our speaker would have liked more time to engage with. We'll also go over some questions that you might have had and generally just have a good time talking about what was on our speaker's mind. Today, we're here with John Rosenstiel and special guest speaker from this weekend, Dr. Nijay Gupta, to talk about the sermon, Can We Take the Bible Seriously?, from our current sermon series, 10 Questions, Exploring Barriers to Our Faith. So you are friends with Mike Bird, yeah. I know, and uh, he's kind of a, he's a very, I think he's pretty funny, uh, he's goofy, yeah. Australian uh, theologian. He publishes a lot as well, and uh, you guys uh, have done some stuff together, I know. So this little book came out, it uh, grabbed my attention, it's, it's short, it's not very long, again, I think written for a, 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 an audience like our church. Mm-hmm. But he uh, he has these seven things, kind of like, I don't know if, if an editor set him up with this or this was his own design, I'm not sure. Seven things I wish Christians knew about the Bible. So the first one is the Bible didn't fall out of the sky, and we've already even touched on that today. You know, the idea that um, the Bible is a real thing, and people wrote it in a real space and time, and mm-hmm. you, you used parchment, and, you know, there was copies made, and, you know, it, you know, I think a lot of modern Christians just, well, I don't know if anybody would actually say that, but I think that it's in our subconscious almost that we've grown up that we just walk down or now order on Amazon and it shows up a day later at your house and there it is from God. It just falls from God. (laughs) And of course I think any thinking person knows that's not true, but that adds complexity to the whole conversation. Anything more you want to say on that? You know, I just find that it really helps people connect with the Bible to know that it, you know, it comes out of people's real lives. I mean, someone like the Apostle Paul's writing personal letters. Mm -hmm. He's talking about being ill or he's talking about uh, being lonely or needing prayer. I mean, that, to me, that helps humanize the Bible to know that it just didn't fall out of the sky. Yeah, I agree. And that gets into his second point, which I think gets us even deeper, maybe into the rabbit hole, but I think a helpful <laughs> rabbit hole, if you will. I don't know if that's a thing. But anyway, uh, nonetheless, the Bible is divinely given and humanly composed. And I've heard people uh, give the analogy of the hypostatic union, that Jesus is fully human and fully God. I don't know if that's good or helpful, um, but I've heard that, and that, that it is this mysterious thing. It's this other category. And I think as with the divinity and the humanity of Jesus is where it's helpful for me, I think people tend to go to both extremes, right? We either believe Jesus of all humanity or we believe him of all divinity, and that, that, that's led all kind of heresy. It's usually heresy goes into one of those two things, one of those yeah, two camps. Yeah. And so I think the same is true, I think, with the Bible. We go to this thing where it's just like it literally, you know, fall, the clouds part and our Bible drops into our hands, and mm-hmm. God has written it with his own finger like to Moses, right? And that, that would be to one extreme, and the other extreme would be, oh, it's just full of, it's all human stuff, and God's mixed in there a little bit, but it's just their perspective of God, and we can take it for what it's worth. We can kind of pick and choose and create our own faith. I think both are wrong. The truth is this fusion, and and people don't like that because we don't like complexity. (laughs) So it's this very complex. (laughs) We want it simple, and we go to our binary extremes, and I think that's the problem, and I think trying to get our church to live in the messy middle, this other... um, I don't know. I'm running my mouth now. Anything, anything you want to add on that one, number two, this kind of this divine and human quality of the Bible? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that he makes a good point in the book. Okay. Uh, number three, uh, Scripture is normative, not negotiable. Do you want to say anything about that? 
Yeah, you know, what Mike's saying there is um, kind of what you, you just said. Uh, you, you, it's kind of an all or nothing <laughs> with the Bible. You can't just say, I like the Jesus parts, but I'm going to throw out the Old Testament because I don't like that stuff. You can't, you can't just pick and choose. Like, it's not an a la carte kind of thing. It's like fixed price menu. <laughs> you know, you're, you're taking everything. And that's important because I mentioned this in a sermon, but it's so easy to use the Bible to reinforce what we want it to say. But yeah, would we, you call that value? I call it the My Values Bible. Yep, yep. Yeah, and I, we see that a lot today where people, my God wouldn't do this, my God wouldn't support that policy. Um, and what we really seem to be hearing then is we're trying to pick and choose the parts of the Bible we want to listen to. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I, when I was growing up, I read a book by Philip Yancey called... Uh, the Bible Jesus read or something, it was something to that effect, right? What was yeah. it? I think that might've been the title. It was about how we just kind of, we don't know the old Testament. We don't read the old Testament. That was of course, Jesus's Bible. Yep. And so if we know Jesus was so deeply immersed in the Bible and even works by like Richard Hayes, a scholar who just shows how influenced the new Testament writers were by the old, by the Hebrew scriptures. Um, again, to Mike's point, to your point, we can't just throw it out. That was Jesus' Bible. That was his prayer book. You know, he, mm-hmm. he deeply lived within that story, and we need to live within it too. All right. So uh, I said it a different way at the top, but uh, his his way of phrasing this: the Bible is for uh, our time, but not about our time. So I, I say it's not written to us before. So right. I stole that from somebody else. I can't remember who. But any comments you want to make on that? Yeah. I mean. Uh, this, this is where we get into a lot of misuse of the Bible, where we feel like, you know, when people say, I can't get a tattoo, because the Bible says don't get a tattoo. It's not talking about a butterfly on your leg. It's probably talking about, like, some kind of ritual scarring. It's talking about connections to paganism. I'm just you afraid know. of needles in the end of all of this, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm okay with the temporary <laughs> tattoos. But, um, you know, a lot of times we we misuse the Bible because we, and, and Mike gets in this later in the book, but... We take it too literally when it shouldn't be, and we don't take it literally enough when we should. Mm. Um, okay, this gets into a good follow-up there to something else we were talking about was the genres aspects mm-hmm. that go on, not with just in the Bible, but each book of the Bible and sometimes even breaking down within that. Um, yeah, you're, you're talking about that right now. Could you expand more on that genre concept? Yeah, I mean, this this helps us to um, read biblical texts well. So, for example, um, I, you were just in in, in uh, you know Israel and surrounding areas, uh, John. But I, someone told me there is a tourist site that's called the Inn of the Good Samaritan that people can visit. But the ironic thing about that is it's a made up parable. So there wasn't actually an end of the Good Samaritan. It's a even good though, marketing plan. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> even though Jericho's a, a real place, you know, and Jerusalem obviously is a real place. Um, you know, when we're reading Jesus' parables, we're not meant to be looking for the items. We're meant to be really listening to the stories. At the same time, there are other texts where the kind of information that the writer gives you is encouraging you to take what they're saying as more historical information. I mentioned the Gospel of Luke uh, or the Book of Acts. They're very specific about locations and people and things like that. There's a really interesting um, painting that I sometimes show my students, uh, drawing, excuse me, that uh, to prove the point of it being ridiculous to take things too literally sometimes, 
they took all the metaphors from the Song of Solomon about the woman, <laughs> and they this. tried to draw it out exactly what she'd look like with her neck as a tower and gazelles and all this stuff. And it's just a ridiculous looking picture, right? And so that's just to prove the point. You know, when, when students ask me, Nijay, do you, and they wouldn't say Nijay, but if they, when they say, <laughs> do you take the Bible literally? You know, Mike and I actually have the same answer. Uh, I take the Bible literally when it's meant to be taken literally, and I take it metaphorically when it's meant to be taken metaphorically. And they, the kind of dumb example I give is, you know, why are, why, are, why are the streets flowing with milk and honey when I'm lactose intolerant? And, <laughs> and, and I, you know, that's because that was the best stuff they had back then. But, like, titanium is stronger and lighter than gold. So why aren't the streets paved with titanium? Well, they could be. The point isn't that they're paved with gold and that there's rivers of milk and honey. The point is this is... It's great. This is what the imagination helps us understand as the beauty of God's new kingdom and not the literal, okay, it's going to be really sticky. So what kind of shoes do I have to wear? Because it's going to be, you know, flowing with honey. Yeah. I remember going over in my hermeneutics class and over genres and stuff. And one of the things that kind of surprised me and relieved me was like Leviticus um, ancient law is different than we mm-hmm. read law. Mm-hmm. And that was a very interesting concept and conversation for me within that class was just a very like, oh, wow, it's even more different than I, I anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, which was just really cool about the genres. John, yeah. back to you on that. Well, I was, I was going to say, I think uh, I, I've, I've met this in my own life. I think no one reads poetry anymore. <laughs> I mean, no one reads anymore, but, you know, especially church kind of people. I mean, I'm being massively hyperbolic, but but not really. I don't think, you know, the American culture isn't known for reading poetry. So I, Eugene Peterson, others, you know, a number of years ago, I was reading them. They said, pastors, speakers have to read poetry, just have mm-hmm. to read it. And and then, you know, you come to find out so much of scripture is poetry. Mm-hmm. Vast amounts of it is poetry. And, you know, uh a good example for folks is that, you know, Hebrew scholars would suggest that a good chunk of the early chapters of Genesis are poetry. Um, and yet we come to a post enlightenment and try to make it a scientific text for how yeah, God created yeah. the world that runs into all sorts of problems. So I think that that's the genre stuff, you know, this, uh, this Sunday we'll be reading Philemon, which, and it's a letter, right? And so, mm-hmm. Paul's telling a story at a letter, and that's that genre, so we have to look at it through the lens of a letter, which is probably easier for most of us than poetry, which we struggle. Right. I'm trying. I'm trying to read poetry, uh, and it's, it's a struggle fest, but it does help me more and more come to the scriptures and begin to understand uh, even the Psalms. You know, we try, to, we try to study the Psalms like one of Paul's letters uh, or like Romans, uh, you're going to run into all kind of problems really quickly. Uh, you 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 knocked out uh, number five there. We should take the Bible seriously, but not literally, is the mm-hmm. way Mike says it. So good job. You're you're moving along, Nije. <laughs> uh, number six, uh, the purpose of Scripture is knowledge, faith, love, and hope. Any comments on that? You know, I, I tried to get the, into this in my sermon for, you know, w- when I was a younger Christian, and even in seminary, um, I thought the point of reading the Bible was to just learn the information. And once you've learned it, then you've, you've done right by the Bible. And it wasn't really until much later on that I read Eugene Peterson's book, Eat This Book, which is really good. It's excellent. And he really emphasizes that... Uh, communing with God through scriptures is less about 
um, being proud of how much information that you have acquired and more about being shaped by God. I mean, why did the Jews and Christians of the, you know, of, of the first century, second century, why did they read the Psalms over and over and over and over again? It's not because they forgot what it was, but because of the formative capacity of these texts to shape your habits and shape your understanding of the world. And, um, and, and so my own Bible reading habits have changed away from quantity. I have to read so many chapters a day. I have to, you know, get through so much information, memorize all the backgrounds of everything, uh, and more towards slowing down and really thinking through how does this help me know God better? And, you know, St. Augustine, who may be familiar to many of you that are listening as kind of a, a saint and hero of the church, um, you know, he, he basically says, you know, even if you don't have a lot of Bible understanding or academic understanding, just know the point of reading scriptures to grow in your love of God and love of neighbor. If somehow in your reading you get there, then you have understood scripture correctly, is what he basically says. And I, I've, I've come around to that position more and more, that if your reading of scripture doesn't lead you to love, then you're doing it wrong. And I think this is a timely message because we, we're seeing the Twitter wars and the social media wars and the church wars over um, so many things, cancel culture. Um, and, you know, I, I think Beth Moore tweeted today something like, where's the love? <laughs> you know, something like, I just, want, I just want to see Christians love each other. It's such a simple message, but it is really timely. I mean, you, the, the Ethos book, um, some people may know this, but you're quoting, I believe, Ezekiel, you know, who, who said that. Well, he didn't mean to actually eat this book. <laughs> I read a story of a, of a death row inmate for his last meal ate an entire 1,200-page Bible. And, you know, I, I don't know how that went for him. Probably not well. I'm wondering if there's, like, a lot of steak sauce involved with that. Like, know, helps get that I, He has, like, a massive face tat. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> nonetheless, I, you know, God bless him. You know, I, I think he, he intended well, but that's to our very point. Ezekiel's not telling you to actually eat the Bible, but to, to, to what you said on Sunday that with your medicine thing, to ingest it, to allow mm-hmm. it to enter it and have its way with us and form us and shape us. You're, you're, you're meditating, or I think he used Peterson's analogy of you know, a dog getting every last morsel yeah. off the bone. I've used uh, a cow chewing its cud, mm-hmm. you know, a cow's swallow. And then they kick it back up and chew it some more and then swallow it and kick it back up. It's kind of gross, it's gross. but yep, yep. it's, it's, gross. it's the intentionality <laughs> to like, no, like I'm not done with this. Right. And I think, you know, I'm getting on in years and been a follower of Jesus for a long, long time now. And I, I continually come back to texts that I think I know well, that I've taught on numerous times and the Holy Spirit, maybe I'm in a different place of life, maybe somebody brings a new angle, I see new depth, new nuance, new angles. I mean, I'm more and more convinced the older I get the depth and the beauty of God's Word if we give it time. Um, so yeah, I, but yeah, I thought that was interesting to eat this book is an exact example of what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, we don't want to, that poor man took it literally. Oh, um, so finally, uh, Christ is the center of of the Bible, the Christian Bible. Anything you want to say about that? That's Mike's Well, I want to go back to the, the Eat This Book just briefly. Um, so AJ Swoboda and I have a podcast called In Faith and Doubt. Everybody has a podcast, but we also have a podcast. Um, and one thing that's come out of that podcast is something that AJ and I call slow theology. Mm-hmm. Slow theology, we came at, we, we, we arrived at that language because 
we had written something um, for Christianity Today. We don't have to get into it right now, but it was um, it got uh, it got immediate negative reactions. Right. <laughs> more Congratulations! Than we, <laughs> more than we could have ever imagined, and um, and and it, it was shocking to us because we didn't think we wrote something that controversial. You can you can just Google it and probably figure it out. But um, what we realized though is is how many. Uh, Church leaders or theologians immediately wrote uh, kind of rebuttals or or kind of condemning condemning rebuttals within forty eight hours, and nobody tagged us or reached out to us and said, "Hey, let's have a conversation. We're really troubled by what you said." Um, what surprised us was this idea that people feel like I have to say something right now. I have to do something right now, or the world is going to mm. implode. And we wanted to write a response. We wanted to think it through, and we wanted to make sure that we were being faithful. But what we realized at that time was no one should be pressuring us to do something fast. Because with most things, when you rush through it, you're sloppy, you make mistakes, and we wanted to take time. Um, And this kind of goes back to what you were saying, John, about, um, you know, coming back to texts taking it slower, meditating. Mm. So we drew slow theology from the slow food movement. There's a slow church movement that basically says, you know, let's, let's slow down. And instead of being a little good at a thousand things, you know, let's go really deep with this one thing. And um, slow theology really is about um, living in the tensions of Scripture, uh, living in the mystery of some of the things that we've talked about, like the divine and human aspects of Scripture. Um, I was going to mention when it talks about not taking the Bible literally or understanding the genre, Jesus' parables, they're essentially riddles. And they're not meant to be just answered. When Jesus asks, when Jesus asks a question, he's not asking you to answer the question most of the time. He wants you to think about the question. That's why the Pharisees normally answered first. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, a quick answer to Jesus' question is going to miss the point. He really wants you to wrestle with the question. And so when I encourage my students um, to engage with Scripture for preaching, for Bible study, for personal enrichment, um, meditation really is about slowing down, slowing our lives down, slowing our listening down, slowing our breathing down, and really trying to sense the presence of God in what you're reading. Yeah, um, I, let me let me add to that a little bit. I can't remember who I read this from, so please forgive me, whoever it is. I'm not attempting to steal it, um, but I would add this to Mike Seven. I've been pondering this a good bit. Um, the authority of the Bible—it's um, not uh, the written text; it's God. So God's behind the written text, it's right? Anti- so that's anti- one. Right. I think you got yeah, it. Yeah. Well, anti right, but I'm, I'm, the point I'm going to share goes beyond that. Mm. So I think that's that's a nuanced point, but a really important point. And so God is the ultimate authority, but also the authority is not our interpretation. And that's really, really crucial for having a humble spirit. And I think if, <laughs> please listen out there. And, and I think that will calm everybody down, to your point, slow everybody down, mm-hmm. and, appro- and have people approach God's word with an open heart and open hands. We, none of us have the corner on the truth. We all have blind spots. We know, uh, sociologists tell us all the time, all the preconceived biases we have. 
We have binary bias. We have confirmation bias. I think my favorite is desirability bias. We want it to say what we want it to say, what we desire. Of course, there's nothing inherently wrong or evil with those things, but we have to understand. And then we bring our own stories and our own history and our own wounds and our own culture and dump them on an ancient text, Mm -hmm. interpret them a certain way, and then shout about them as if we were God himself. (laughs) It's just our interpretation. Now, it may be the correct interpretation. It may not be. Um, So there is authority out there. The authority is in God's word. But the step to get our interpretation of it is one we should do with fear and trembling. Mm -hmm. And slowly, to your point. Mm -hmm. And even when we do feel like that we, and again, we have to live it out. We have to come to a point where we see things a certain way and believe them, have church polity, of course. But we do it humbly. Mm -hmm. We do it with, with an eye towards, I could be wrong. Don't think I am, but I could be. Again, I, I just wanted to, that's been something I've been pondering a lot that I think that I've made that mistake too, because I'm wired in such a way that I feel deeply. I feel strongly about things. I like to argue. So I'm guilty of this as well. And I think the older I've grown, I really love that term you guys have coined, uh, slow theology. It's beautiful. Well, you know, in, in you know, if you look just at Jesus' disciples, um, you know, he purposely chose people that were different. You have a tax collector and you have a zealot. And what does that mean? You have someone who's essentially pro-empire and someone who's anti-empire. And you're throwing them together and they're, and they're living together and they're sleeping on the ground next to each other and they're cooking meals together. And my wife and I and my family have been watching the TV show The Chosen uh, every now and again. And they really do a good job of drawing out the tensions in the relationships and the inherent value differences between the disciples. And you, and I keep going back to the question, why did Jesus do that? And I think one of the answers is humility. I mean, it's going to humble you to say, we're going to be people coming from two different walks of life, but we're following one the same Jesus. Good. Um, do you want to say anything about Mike's last point before we segue out of his book, Jesus is the center of the Bible? Yeah, it is a tricky thing. You know, if you're reading some parts, like we were talking about Leviticus. If you're reading Leviticus, how is Jesus the center of Leviticus? I will say, yes, Jesus is the center of the Bible. I will also say, and I think Mike would agree with me, don't use that as an easy answer to diffuse everything in the Bible. Mm. So, for example, um, Ecclesiastes is all about how life doesn't make sense. And sometimes you just have to you know, eat a good steak, right? Um, enjoy the, the evening breeze and just be okay, you know, with your, you know, with your friend or with your girlfriend or boyfriend. I don't eat steak. Well, what? vegan are steak. You, are you sad about this right now? <laughs> <laughs> I said a good steak. Yeah. No, um, and, and, and I remember hearing a Christian song that really tried to wrap Ecclesiastes up in a nice bow of, but then Jesus came and everything's fine. And the problem with that is that's not how we live our lives. Yeah. We believe in Jesus, we love Jesus, and we still get cancer. We believe Jesus, and we love Jesus, and we still have people die in car accidents. Um, there's still domestic abuse. There's still, um, you know, war. Um, so, so even though I do believe Jesus is the center, I don't want to always, and I hate when sermons do this. John, you do a good job of not doing this, but um, I hate when sermons just try to end with the happy ending. Mm-hmm. Then Jesus came and everything got better. Because some people live difficult lives. At some point in our life, we're going to have difficulty, and we don't want to hear a pastor say, everything is fine because Jesus came. Yeah, it doesn't recognize where large portions of the the audience are in their lives. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, so much of the Psalms are laments, right? Mm. And I think that's comforting. And gee, the promise in Revelation is that not there will be no tears. That's where people misinterpret Scripture, but that Jesus will wipe away our tears, yeah. right? So it, pre, it presumes sadness even on the other side. I don't know what that'll look like, but I think it's messier. And again, more complex than we're comfortable with. But yeah, maybe a better analogy um, than center uh, would be the the trajectory of Scripture leads to Jesus and is completed in Jesus mm-hmm. and is brought. You know, I think that that's. I understand, I, and I think you know Mike, but I would I would think that Mike would agree with that. The yeah. center maybe causes us to look at uh, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures and try to find Jesus right there, and that wasn't always the intent of, especially in the wisdom literature, to your point and others. So maybe it's all pointing and leading, and you know, I think that that's where I would probably feel more comfortable with the analogy. Yeah, I would say Jesus is, I might say Jesus is the hope or the climax, climax yeah. of the story the Bible tells. Yes. And um, that I think there is, there is hope and comfort in that. I think look, looking back, I think we can look back effectively, not read back into it, but I think we're given a new perspective by looking maybe through the lens of the coming of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think we're added more depth and nuance to some of the stories, but... There are many things, and we'll get into one right now, that, that has loose ends, and that's the... Can I just go into the question of yeah, violence? Do it, do it. Is yeah, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm waiting for it. I'd see you leading. So, <laughs> yeah, so this was... Uh, yeah, for we're, we're already running along. This is a very... We could probably just have a whole season of podcasts and many on this topic, um, so I don't want to... I want to set this up for success, but um, I believe that's one of the questions in our big read, mm-hmm. Rebecca's book, and we... It, it, we did, it did not make the series, uh, not because we think it's unimportant, but probably, frankly, because I think it's, I don't know that we do it service in one Sunday, to be honest. I think it's too big of a question, but it's important, and it is troublesome. It's troublesome to me. I'll I'll admit that. There's portions of, uh, and so if you're coming to this fresh, essentially the idea is you you open up portions of of the Old Testament, um, uh, particularly uh, Joshua and, you know, Judges and some of these passages, some of the language in the Psalms, which Mm-hmm. is not as problematic to me because I think, back to our point, it's poetry. So I think that, you know, mm-hmm. we can understand it maybe a little bit. Um, but some of the things that seem like God's commanding violence and really horrible violence um, to, uh, to be done in his name through his people. And then I think to a lesser degree, some of the, the violence in the New Testament, if we have time, we can touch on that. I think that's a different issue, in my opinion. But nonetheless, the Bible at times is a very violent book. I always mm-hmm. joked with my parents, I was a youth pastor for many years, and certain families would be very selective on what they would have their kids read. And right. I'm like, oh, but you're letting them read the Bible? <laughs> Woo! There's just lots of sex, lots of violence, the Bible, those kind of things. So the question is like, wow, you know, how can God be this God of shalom? How can Jesus be the Prince of Peace? Um, when we see it seems like God uh, commanding violence in his name. That's kind of the deal. Entire reams of books have been written on it, and I think it would be helpful today. Maybe I've got a few that I can recommend. I know you've got one that you mentioned before we started filming. Then, if people that are, they're really caught up on that issue, I don't want I don't want to go through this series and not address it at all. So, kind of now's our moment. Mm-hmm. Where do they go? And have you come to any places? You, I'm sure you've wrestled with this. Mm-hmm. That you found some freedom. That maybe you found an help or an answer. I don't know. I have not found a, a complete answer, a silver bullet yet, but any, any thoughts on the yeah, question I of Yeah, I do want to recommend the book, God Behaving Badly by David Lamb, who, it's a short book, and, you know, he doesn't 
you know, resolve everything perfectly, but he does get, go through all these texts that are, you know, um, reflecting the violence of God in, in uh, Deuteronomy or, um, you know, other places. How do I approach this? Um, you know, part of it is just the phenomenon itself of violence. And part of it then is the question of God's implication in it. I think we have to recognize that um, the, the, the age of history that the Old Testament is chronicling is an age of warfare. It was just a fact of life. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying it was normal. People were defending their villages, defending their land. Um, conquest was was typical in ways that we aren't used to in our, you know, even, even the, the yeah, war in Ukraine, um, it's jarring to see people's camera footage because it's so alien to our experience yeah. in a way that wasn't true, you know, those hundreds of years ago. Um, one thing that I try to communicate to my students, especially when I was teaching undergraduate, is um, if you want to look at what the Bible really wants to communicate, don't just take every, every text with the same amount of weight. Uh, if you want to know the Bible's vision for the world, it's especially clear in the beginning and the end. So when we look at the beginning in Genesis, when we read Genesis, you get a scene that's very peaceful, right? Uh, if you've uh, read the Chronicles of Narnia books, it has this beautiful image of God kind of, or the, the lion the painting the world into existence. It's very harmonious and peaceful. You have to compare that to ancient Near Eastern uh, myths about the origin of the world, which is very violent, like, like these monsters or beasts at war with each other and blood and then the humans are created out of blood and tears and all this stuff. A lot of the myths of human origins or world origins that come from other cultures, Babylon and uh, ancient Mesopotamia, they're violent. And so you would see the Genesis account as very different, placid, peaceful, serene, one God making the world in peace. And then sin and then the violence, like Cain killing Abel, is actually a, a, a mark of sin rather than the way it was meant to be. There's a book that we read in seminary called uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, and it's about <laughs> Cornelius Plantica. That's right. Yeah. And that's exactly how the Bible portrays violence in the world. And then you look at the end, like you were talking about, Book Revelation and other texts that talk about the end of the world as a place where the child will play with his hand by the, you know, the pit of the snake and the snake will not bite him. Um, the wolf will lie down the lamb, you know, people like Shane Claiborne talk, you know, they actually embody melting guns into farming tools. I don't know if you guys know that, but he actually mm -hmm. has this ministry where he goes around and collects weapons Cool. and he'll actually melt them into farming tools as an emblem and an, and, and an actual, uh, active bringing about of the kingdom of God. Um, we just watched recently with my family, especially my son, who's 13, the Lord of the Rings mm. movies. It's all violence from beginning to end. <laughs> Every scene is a war scene, essentially. Um, and I'm just curious. I would love to have a conversation with Tolkien about that. If I could sit down with Tolkien, obviously he's long past, but if I could sit down with Tolkien, I'd want to say, why is there so much war in here? There's something about war that is defining in terms of values. I'm not justifying it. I don't think war is good. I don't wish war upon the world. But the Bible does reflect on war as, as a kind of defining phenomenon. Um, I will say there is a difference between what happens when Jesus comes and, and he really does come 
uh, to bring unity and peace. Um, but, but, but if I want to point people to what the Bible wants to say about violence, I would point them to the beginning to the end. Yeah, a couple thoughts I I have on this one. Uh, reading some about Tolkien's life, I know I know the the Lord of the Rings was heavily influenced by his own participation in the Great War. He mm-hmm. was in World War One, and I think that was fresh on his mind as he was writing. Which Working again, that, yeah, it's neither here nor there. I think that's an interesting uh, question. But I, is my in my wrestling with this and reading on this. Um, I don't think there is silver bullet. I don't think anybody's cracked the code yet, and that's what mm-hmm. I would warn against. It's complex, and I think be okay with um, saying, like, I don't know. That's a disturbing scene, <laughs> right? I think we have to be okay w- with saying that. That doesn't mean there's not an answer, um, but to your point, I really like it. It is a very, very small part in often narrative or poetic forms um, of a much larger story that's about shalom and peace. Um, I don't think that's a silver bullet. I don't mean to dismiss it and brush it aside. Um, but I think that's a good point. That's a hermeneutical tool not to focus on the one instance we don't understand when there's a hundred that clearly explain. Um, but I do think that there's some helpful ways. One, for me at least, I will say, one is uh, it's called the redemptive hermeneutic. I'll ta- actually talk about it a little bit this week with regards to slavery. William Webb uh, kind of created that term. Lots of others have written on it. William Webb actually came out with a book recently on ultimate violence called bloody, brutal, and barbaric mm. wrestling with troubling texts, where I think he applies the, the, and so basically a redemptive hermeneutic is look at how the world was within the context the Bible is written, which is an important tool, and almost always these texts improve drastically right. on what was common. Um, so again, doesn't dismiss it. Yeah. That's been helpful to me. Two would be going all the way back to the fact that there is a human element to mm-hmm. the writing of the Bible. So I think that can get dicey, and we got to be really careful with that. Um, but uh, I think that that does come into play sometimes. You know, we have to allow for human emotion and human perspective. I think that that is a piece. And then Greg Boyd is a pastor who's written extensively, and uh, he, he came out with a book a couple of years ago. I'm not sure what you think about it, DJ, as a scholar, but um, it's called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God, Interpreting the Old Testament's Violent Portraits of God in Light of the Cross. Mm. Volume 1 and 2, I would not recommend that because it's like a thousand pages. Yeah, There's a shorter one called Cross Vision. So he, uh, he, he coined this term cruciform hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. And going back to Mike's last point in his book, again, I think that he didn't completely sell me on it, but it's been helpful to me. And he argues um, that we have to look back on these things through the lens of the cross. And so we have a God who put on flesh, who did die a violent death uh, for sin to make things right, to make a world where shalom reigned and violence doesn't exist. And yes, we have to do our work and trying to wrestle with those texts and stuff like that. But if we look at it through the lens of that being our God, we know that for sure. That's the big point, mm. and I think that's helpful. I don't know if it, he needed 1,200 pages to make that point, but I think that um, for that's me— That's what academics do. <laughs> yeah. For me, that's been helpful. And so um, I, I would recommend, if, if this is a troubling thing, and it is to people, uh, I, I, don't, I don't find it broadly. I don't find broadly people in the church like, I just can't sleep at night because of Old Testament violence. But for a certain segment of you out there, that is the issue. That yeah. is the barrier. 
and I want to honor that. And and you've been given now, I think, four recommendations of books. Um, and so you can many. you could reach out to DJ and I if if we can help guide you. If you're like, I got time for one. Which one sh- should I read? Um, Paul Copen has done a lot of work on Old Testament violence as well. I can point you to some podcast mm-hmm. uh, if, if that's more your jam. Um, but again, not a silver bullet. I think there's ways that help within the text once we understand the context and we do faithful hermeneutic work that help relieve it of some of its like, ugh. Um, and then I think looking through the lens of the cross to where mm-hmm. God's ultimately taking. I mean, going back to Lord of the Rings, right? That great scene with Gandalf and Samwise where he wakes up and Gandalf's over him and he says, Gandalf, you know, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. You know, kind of the humor there. Is everything sad going to come untrue? I think is yeah. his question, which I think is such a beautiful question. Um, did Tolkien have to spend all those books and all that violence to get to that point? Right. But I mean, that's almost the cross moment. That's almost the resurrection moment mm-hmm. of like, yeah. And I think as Christians, we say, yeah, that's what we believe. It's going to be undone. It's going to be flipped. It's going to be right. What will that look like? I don't know. But that's the story that we rally around. I think for me, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of the the Christian manifesto of kind of a peace ethic. You have the Beatitudes, which, you know, which talks about peacemakers. You have the notion of turning the other cheek, which is the sense of absorbing violence. You know, we talk about what's the Bible's effect on culture. Has the Bible ramped up warfare? Maybe. But then you also have people like Martin Luther King Jr., who is highly influenced in his peaceful, uh, you know, resistance. by the Sermon on the Mount. You also have Gandhi, who was actually influenced by it. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but he was actually influenced by the Sermon on the Mount as well. You have Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who wrote a book on, essentially, the Sermon on the Mount, um, calling for resistance, but but in a, in a peaceful way as well. And so um, the, the, the blueprint is there for peace in the Bible, even though there are parts of the Bible yeah, you that Quakers, are still troubling. you got Mennonites, you got entire streams of, of faithful followers of Jesus that they live it out. They mm-hmm. really live it out. And I think that's that's more reading I need to do in my life on that topic, frankly. Uh, I'm intrigued by it. What is it? The pacifist uh, readings and writings, and I'm intrigued by it. Yeah. And um, But you give me so much many books to read for my class, I just have no time to read. Just, no excuses. Just, that, was, that, was a, that was a good throw in there. Thanks. So I'm hearing, um, in my mind as I'm, I'm listening to you guys, uh, and we've talked a little bit about this before in, in episode one, but... Um, almost again, living in the tension, like, yeah, violence is in the Bible. There, there's some stuff to talk about and be had about that and somewhat accepting its existence there, but knowing that on, on the end, like that wasn't the intention and it's not the intention. And that's what Jesus came back to, to deal with Mm -hmm. and in a way and that we also apparently need to have a whole nother episode on Lord of the Rings. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> if we sure. get an expert, neither of us are, are bona fide experts. Yeah, I mean, the last little nuance I would add, offer pastorally maybe for for people that maybe lean more left or, or progressive um, is in the New Testament violence. And I feel like there's been a little bit of of movement largely from... Western thinkers who have not, frankly, grown up around a lot of violence or warfare. We've had very peaceful times. This war in the Ukraine is the biggest war in 75 years. Mm. So I think that wow. we, we need to remember that. And, you know, we've grown up in a, maybe the most peaceable time period in entire human history. Doesn't mean, anyway, but what I, what I hear is almost a mitigating of even the violence at the cross, if yeah. that makes sense at all, um, which, in my humble opinion, is mitigating sin, 
and um, there is a violence on the cross, right? And we, we're not going to get into all the streams of atonement theory, and that's a whole other pod, <laughs> mini podcast, right? But um, I think that I, I'm uncomfortable with that. I think that, you know, I'm uncomfortable with the violence, but I think the violence shows the depth of the depravity of brokenness in the world and what God had to go through to make all things right. And the cross is the epitome of violence. And my sin is robust and needs to be paid for. Um, and I can say that forthright. And, 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 and so I see in, in some circles towards the edges of it, almost a, a mitigating of it, which, where we get almost to the point where we're mitigating our sin so much, we don't even really need a savior. Mm. <laughs> and we don't need, we don't need the, the violence. So I would say to my, to my friends, to maybe those leadings, that maybe you need you know, to lean in a little more to that, that um, you don't hear that much from, from folks and theologians and thinkers in the third world, mm-hmm. or even previous to this modern century where it was just their reality. If you would ask them, do you believe in the reality of sin? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, what? What kind of nonsensical question is that? Do you believe evil exists? What? What, what are you talking about? Um, so again, that's that that goes. I just make that point because I think that actually goes to this broader conversation we're having. The things we bring to the text that we're blind to, because I'll say it because of our privilege. And so I think we need to own that and try our best to remove that and come to the text. Anyway, I just felt led pastorally to add that. I think there's many different angles to this violence thing, and I think to remove all violence from the Bible, I think there's a reason for it. Um, and yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I think as I was pondering about Lord of the Rings, um, <laughs> I, and getting back a little bit what you were saying too, though, uh, I think it's the point of the violence in Lord of the Rings, is to show it's not right. right. I mean, when you think about it, and and early on in that conversation, like the hobbits were kind of upheld as this peaceful group. Um, no one really wants to go to this, but it has to happen in this case, and and violence exists because it exists in our world, mm-hmm. and but that was never what it was supposed to be right? and what we have to look forward to. But in the meantime, yeah, we live in this tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 now you got to be talking about Lord of the Rings. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I just read it with, with Eden recently and, and I had forgotten the, really it's like a fifth of the book after everything's won. I totally I forgot yeah. about that, you know, reading it as a kid. And that ended up being some of my favorite parts. But if you remember, they all go back to the Shire, they say goodbye to everybody. And it's in disarray. Yeah. It's just, it's, you know, graffiti On and fire. everything's torn yeah. down and grown over. And then there's like this, you know, violent insurrectionist group that's leading. And so they all show up and, you know, this is identity language, right? They're, Aragorn is their guy, right? It's like, he's king. They, no one else knows it yet. That, that, it, it, that, you know, all's been in the process of being made right. He's coming. He's going to visit. And they're, they're, they're kind of the advance guard, which is kind of the church. And they carry themselves in a different way when this group comes up and gets rough with them. They kind of scoff at them, like, you have no idea what's happened and what's been done. So even as we live in a world of mayhem and violence, I think that's some of Tolkien's brilliance in that last piece. I mean, I was tearing up as I was ready to get to Eden thinking, oh my gosh, I missed this as a kid. I probably just slammed through this. And I'm the, just the thinking action I missed it because I didn't read it and I've only seen it. Oh, oh, yeah, the movies are different. Josh. The movies are different. <laughs> Let's just end in prayer now. <laughs> All right, so between both of you, Nijay, John, as, as we come to a close on this conversation, what does it look like to actively within our lives living out the concept of taking the Bible seriously? What does it look like? 
I mean, I could say a lot of things. I'll just say one thing. Um, bring your bring your honest engagement and questions to the Bible. I think some myself. I think I would have felt kind of uh, like it was irreverent to be you know asking questions about the Bible or pushing back. Um, I think you know within within limits that you know it's actually important that we ask questions and and even raise questions to God. Why would, why would you do this? Why would this happen? Jesus does this when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's asking questions of God. But, you know, one thing I've learned from AJ as we've, as we've done our podcast is the beauty of knowing that you're on the right path is not whether you're asking questions, but who you're talking to and you're talking to God. And that itself is a sign of faith. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I would say this is an anti right thing, but um, it's a story, and it's a story that we're to live into and to continue living. Um, it, it, you know, I, I think he uses this analogy, or maybe someone else does, but it's almost like a, like a, a, a script with different acts. You know, and, and we're yeah. the acts. You, you know, we're the next act. We're, we we've got it, and we're supposed to live it out. Um, and yeah, I think in my engagement with scripture, one, I think evangelicals can uh, fall into the trap of doing really, really good job, almost like the Pharisees, of studying God's Word. And we're just, we got so many Bible study books and so many Beth Moore books and so many, right, we don't even know what to do with them. Um, and we're really good at studying Bible study fellowship. And all that, absolutely, don't hear that I'm hating on that, 100% we need to do that. But at the end of the day, we study it to live it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's true, but we prove it's true not by apologetics and all that, and that some of that's needed, right? But to, we prove it's true by how we live it out. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yes, yesterday, you know, I, I tried to engage with God's Word every morning and oftentimes in the evening as well, and I was doing that. But I was just grumpy yesterday, as, as pastors get sometimes. <laughs> and uh, I was just a jerk to my daughter. And uh, she was late for school, and, and she legitimately was late and could have done better, right? There's some, but, but I was not kind, mm. and, and I was I exasperated my child. This the scriptures told tell you not to do. <laughs> And I just added weight to her to her fourteen year old heart that didn't need to be added, and and um, and kind of softened it as I dropped her off, um, but just was convicted by the Holy Spirit and you know, engaged with God's word, and like here I am, and so I texted her and I needed to apologize, and I followed up with her later that night. Um, yeah, I want to be that kind of dad. I want to be that kind of follower of Jesus. I'm gonna mess up. I'm gonna be grumpy again. I'm not gonna be a good husband sometimes. I'm gonna drop the ball as a pastor. All these kind of things, but. If I'm going to be living out the story, I got to live it out. It's if it's true, it's true, and we're meant to live into it and and develop those muscles. I mean, James, the brother of Jesus, devotes a whole letter to that. Really, that's kind of his point. And um, and we want to be a church that not only knows God's word deeply, and I and I, I hope I can speak for Nietzsche here as the true scholar. We want to. That's important. We want to have scholars. We want to spend our work. We want to study hard. We want to have good theology, but not if it's just for that. Um, we want to be known as a church that has minds that are renewed, but bodies that are energized by the story, that we can be literally the hands and feet of Jesus, being the body of Christ in a world that's broken, making all things right. I'm a work in progress in that, but that's what I would say with God's Word. Study it, squeeze it, meditate on it, pray over it. Yes, yes, yes. Live it. Test it. You want to know if it's true? Try it out and live into it. Thanks for listening to New Hope's Cutting Room Floor Podcast. And don't forget to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check out newhopepdx.org to get to know us more.